Okay, brothers, we are in Ephesians chapter 5. And we are going to hit a pretty radical contrast right off the bat as we read this. And I'm going to read from the ESV. It helps us a little bit. It is a bit more literal. It's a great translation. If you've, if you've never actually spent some time in it, I think you would actually gain a lot from it. One of the things that I try to do is have three translations to help me through as I'm studying any passage if I want to get a bit deeper in it. The three that I happen to use are the NIV, only because it's the, the one that we're most likely going to preach from, uh, and the ESV, and then the NET, the New English Translation. That one's good because it has such good uh, insights into the translation, and they always give a lot of notes into how they chose the translations that they did. Between those three, uh, you often uh, encounter something that you need to see in, in the text by, by seeing the difference between them. Nonetheless, here we go. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here we have one of the more astounding passages on the grace of God on our behalf, making us beloved children before a father God who adores you and recognizes you as such. And you have a sweet smelling sacrifice in the awful, excruciating atonement that Jesus brought for you. But sweet smelling meaning that it is acceptable fully in God's sight. And you have been made not only right, but righteous and lovely before a God who now sees you as his own beloved sons. And then we go from there, and we, we preached on that on Easter, and then we go from there, but, and here is a serious pivot in this uh, epistle more than any other, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Now, in the NIV, of course, it says, the famous passage, there must not even be a hint of, of these things. Fair enough, but literally what is being said, there shouldn't even be talk of this sort of stuff. If you're God's child, if you're his chosen possession, if you're dearly loved, if you have this status, if you've been transformed, if you've been given the gift of all gifts, the, oh my goodness, lottery upon lotteries is yours, and now this would even be mentioned among you? There's a massive, massive disconnect that has somehow occurred. It, it should not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness. No, and these are all three descriptions of different types of, of speech. No filthy talk, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. In other words, let grace have its say. Let grace have its impact rather than disgrace. And as we'll read on, but the, the, the title of my lesson today, and really just one point, is Disgrace or His Grace. Now when he says, let there be no filthiness, sometimes it's uh, translated obscenity, it's the type of talk that would have to do with uh, the, the previous words that were in there, pornea, immorality, impurity, those are kind of sexual debased type sins that are, that are in, in view there. Um, and that th this kind of talk would have to do with that. Also, no foolish talk. That's, that, that's kind of like empty 
kind of cutting sarcasm. I know that's where we have to brace ourselves as men because I think that is maybe my main love language. Uh, but 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 don't don't get to the point. Well, so I guess I can never use sarcasm, or I'm have no part in the kingdom of heaven a, at all. Well, Paul uses sarcasm. I mean, Paul's the one who said, "Hey, look, go ahead and emasculate if that's the case." Or I mean, he he really does uh, use sarcasm in, in more than a few cases, but he uses it rather pointedly. Also, to to be real. There are times when we can use sarcasm with one another where it actually is bonding. Yeah. And we recognize that we're doing it in a, in a kind of a, a, a fun way with one another. And the fact that we have been now made right in Christ means that we're not all about ourselves anymore. And when we're not all about ourselves, it's a whole lot easier to actually be okay with having a little fun poked our way. Because we have something bigger for which we live. And before, all we had was our own precious self. And if any of that got poked and prodded, whoa, let's not be joking in any of those areas. And it was a whole lot more sensitive. So interestingly, when you really are emptied of self and completely immersed in Christ, there are certain subject matters that it actually does open up the door for good humor. I'm not talking about coarse or crass or filthy joking, but for good humor that, that continues to bond us as guys. Now, how many of you brothers are not yet married? None of that works on sisters. Enough said. Let's move on. All right, let me, let me read this part again because Paul is about to slam the mic on, on these next statements. So again, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now, crude joking, by the way, is a very interesting word. The, the word for, for um, crude joking is, is actually the word that means a clever turn of a phrase. And, and it, it has this idea of like a double entendre. And, and a double entendre is, you know, it's kind of, right, just to, to be crude for a minute, it's a that's what she said type, type joke. I mean, that, that would be kind of the classic idea that is behind this word here. Yes, it was clever that you took my phrase over here and you added that's what she said. But that is, in, in, in this context, a disgrace if we have been so washed with the grace of God. And then he goes on to say, but instead, our lives should be about thanksgiving. Amen. Why? Well, verses 1 and 2. But let's move on. Now, here's, here's how he really brings this home. In case you start to think to yourself, well, but you know, yeah, there's immorality and there was impurity in my life. And you know what? Covetousness or greed is, is kind of you know, in there as well. Um, you know, does that... Does that mean that I'm not actually, you know, going to be kind of under grace and getting all of the kind of the wonders of grace? Isn't, isn't grace kind of still available to me? And we're going to study out grace in a deep context tonight. So uh, I'll, I'll answer these. But look at how Paul brings it, just as his audience might be thinking that. But, but, but aren't I still covered? I mean, aren't I continually covered by all of this? And he goes on to say, for you may be sure of this. And the ESV does a good job of capturing the, the, the tense and the sense of the original language. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, it's interesting that greed is equated with idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
whoa. So now he's got us reeling like, what? What, really? Like, every single, and, and this is a universal statement that he makes. Everyone, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. And just as you're getting ready to maybe object to that, Look at how he goes, yeah, but you know what? I once heard somebody say, but there is no condemnation that is in Christ. But, but isn't the grace of God big enough to cover even my sexual escapades and my, 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 my drunken rowdiness and even my willful, deliberate, ongoing sinning and all this? Isn't the grace of God big enough for all that? I've heard, I've heard preachers preach that at different times. And just as we might be having that objection, look at what Paul comes with right after that. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Whenever the Bible uses the, the, a son of God, a son of disobedience, it means that you are one who is characterized by God or characterized by disobedience. And so if you are one who is one of disobedience, well, then guess what? The wrath of God is coming. You can listen to empty words all you want. You can tune your radio to a certain station that will somehow give you what your itching ears want to hear. But bottom line, are we going to go by the word of God or are we going to go by some sort of a pollution or corruption or watering down of the word of God? Grace is powerful, but it's not meant to be trifled with. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not be partners with them. In other words, don't have fellowship with people who talk like that, who corrupt the grace of God, or as Jude says, who turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So here we have really two different paths of one that could respond to the grace of God. Disgrace, and whether you want to look at that as D-I-S, G-R-A-C-E, or D-Y-S, in other words, a dysfunctional uh, conception of the grace of God, or really recognizing His grace with all of the, the uh, momentous consideration that, that that involves. Now, in order to understand what the audience here in Ephesus would have actually appreciated when hearing all that went on in Ephesians 1 and 2, all the beauty of what was said in verses 1 and 2, as, as Jesus gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, that we are not saved by ourselves, but by the grace of God, not of ourselves, uh, so that no one can boast. And all of that is, and that really is the case, and that really does happen. And that grace is given to us for no great merit of any sort on our own, but because he loved us, with which that great love with which he loved us, he made us alive even while we were dead in our sins. And grace is definitely that. It is God loving you at your ugliest. But now here's where it is very important to understand that grace is not just some word that dropped into the New Testament out of nowhere. 
it was, it, it, there's a technical word, theolegomon, which means a, a word that only has meaning in the Bible. And it is not a word like that. It is a word that would be used quite widely in commerce and in everyday uh, uh, social interactions in Roman colonies and in Ephesus. There's a lot written on it. Seneca you may have heard of. Cicero you may have heard of. Pliny you may have heard of. They've all wrote quite a bit on this idea of charis. That's the, the, the Greek word for grace. And it, and it was not an unknown concept. Now it is interesting that it helps to get a bit of a social context because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, charis is not actually a well-developed word. And Paul doesn't grab it from the Old Testament and appropriates it for his uses here throughout Romans or Galatians or Ephesians or wherever else we'll be reading this year. But he does, however, use a word that in his audiences, where he's bringing the gospel to these synagogues that now include a massively Gentile audience and where the churches quickly become much more Roman than they do Jewish very quickly. And the letters, when they reach them, are reaching them when they are now minority Jewish and majority Gentile or Roman. He's using a concept from their side. Now, let me, let, let me give you um, a, a couple kind of bits of background on this. Um, Paul's audiences would have understood that God expected them not just to receive his gifts, but having received it, to make use of, respond to, and show an appropriate assessment of their value. Cadiz, in, in this society, was a very special commodity. Cadiz, or grace, was always bestowed in an idea of patronage or benefaction. Patronage is where one is a sponsor, or one holds all the power, all of the cards, and yet out of his magnificence, or beneficence, or love, or mercy... He decides to bestow upon you the ability to buy land, the ability to, to enter into a new trade, uh, the, the ability to get a, a just judgment in, in a court. All of that is grace bestowed in the society of Ephesus in, in different forms. But they would have all heard the word caris in the, in the midst of all of this. And having received grace then creates an unbreakable and intimate bond between you and your patron. He just hooked you up and changed the trajectory of your lineage for generations to come. No longer are you simply going to be you know, tilling at a field. Suddenly, now you have a chance because you bought in to, to, to one of the, the, the uh, locations along the Agora there in Ephesus that you now get to be you know, a, a worker of copper. Uh, now your life has, has completely changed that you now have this space. A patron made that available to you and you now with that patron are, are going to have a relationship that never ends because you will then always have an appropriate response. There will be a reciprocal response on your part and if there's not, it is scandalous in Ephesus. Let me, let me read to you a quote from, from Seneca. He says... I'll find it here in a second. Um, to fail to return gratitude is a disgrace once grace is received. And the whole world counts it as such. That if there is not an appropriate reciprocal response 
of gratitude from the one who has received the gift, then the social fabric of the whole world at that time, and Seneca was a contemporary of Paul during this time, the the social fabric of the whole world would, would recognize that you have responded inappropriately. As a matter of fact, Seneca, who writes a great deal about grace, uh, uses the image of a famous statue in antiquity. And the statue is called the Three Graces. As a matter of fact, we, we were in London for my son's wedding and, and in front of uh, Hampton Court, which is where Henry VIII's palace was. There's a famous statue of these Three Graces, and they're dancing in a circle. And Seneca used that statue to explain the way that grace works. The first of the figures in this wonderful dance of relationship with one another is the one who gives grace without coercion, merely out of a, a, an initiating act of love. So that's the first aspect of grace. Again, that Roman society would understand. Keep, keep this in mind right now. I'm not trying to teach you grace right out of the New Testament. I'm trying, if you heard grace in this letter and you're coming to Paul to receive this, this is what you would hear with Ephesian ears. So the first thing you would hear is that the first appropriate aspect of grace is that it is given, uncoerced, out of initiation, out of love, by the giver, the benefactor, the patron. But then the dance doesn't end with just one. Then there's a second grace in the dance. And the second grace is the receiver. And the receiver, in, in, in uh, Koine Greek, grace was also the way to receive a gift. And it was the idea of receiving a gift with gratitude. And so in, in their kind of understanding of the word, it's not just only the giving, but when you said grace, it was also your overflowing, astounding gratitude that you have been given this chance to have your life changed by a benefactor, by a patron, by a patron. And then there's one last grace in the dance that creates a deeper intimacy. And it is an onward continuous cycle in this dance. And that is then the overflowing gratitude of the heart is then expressed in a reciprocal effort to be able to to, to show gratitude back to the giver. And so grace is then, in a sense, given or or, or really there's some sort of a proportional or reciprocal effort on on the part of the receiver who gives back. It's why Paul can say, about, about uh, the grace received by him that we are compelled by Christ's love because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So what was the gift? The death of God's son. What is Paul's re- response? It is a reciprocal response. Therefore, we who live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. What is the result of Paul's interaction with grace? His reaction is, how can I not respond with proportional, appropriate gratitude that is displayed appropriately as he gave his life for me? And now, my goodness, I am so honored to give my life to him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.19, where Paul reiterates the exact same idea again. Uh, and, and likewise, we are, we are saved by the grace of God, not from works, but to be his workmanship created in him to do good works. 
And so, so grace always flows right back again. Not as though we're actually paying off God or in, in some way uh, no longer remaining under his debt. The grace from the patron is always so great that it can't even be compared to the, the grace of the receiver. It's just merely an overflowing thanksgiving that, that comes from the heart of the one who receives. Amen. The giving is free and uncoerced, but the receiving creates a relationship of intimate obligation. Not a um, shackled obligation, but one that is born out of thanksgiving. And, and who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want to be kind of almost like just empowered by gratitude to always think, oh my goodness, I mean, what, what would I not do for, for the sake of God? Reciprocity or making an appropriate return for the gift of a favor done was firmly hardwired into their social and ethical consciousness. Uh, that, that's also from, from Seneca um, as, as he explains that. And while we can never repay God or equal his grace, we're nevertheless provoked by God's generosity to live like people who can never give enough back to God, who can never reach a point where we say, I've given back to God as God has given to me. I can start living for myself now. I'm out of his debt. We can never think that. And we should never ever be minimalists. And if we ever ask, what is necessary for me to be saved or to stay saved? We're not asking the right question. We should be asking instead, since Jesus gave his life for me and brought me the gifts of a fresh start with God and the spirit of God to dwell within me, what is right for me to do now in return for what it is that he has done for me? What does an appropriate to this, uh, to, uh, response to this look like? That would have been immediate in the minds of all the Ephesians. And for Paul to then say, and among you, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, covetousness, trying to live the best life that you can, giving God your leftovers rather than giving God your first distorting, polluting, and corrupting the beautiful intimacy that God designed in a sexual relationship. What, one that he often refers to, even in our relationship with him, metaphorically, to, to take that and to corrupt it into, into something so debased as, as not even wanting intimacy, but only wanting lustful desires sated on, on our part. To, to do all of that, having been so affected by grace, should not even be mentioned among you. And so then the question is, again, it's the minimalist question, but am I still saved? Am I still saved? Paul makes it clear. If this is the way you live your life, if you are a son of disobedience, if you immerse yourself in a life where it's no longer a reciprocal thanksgiving for the grace that has been given to you, but instead an entitlement or a complete neglect of a God who gave his all, where you just say, eh, it's nice, not thrilling, but nice. You got anything else? Maybe do a little miracle. Maybe hook me up here or there. I need a little something, something else for that. When we get to that point where we decide to break out of that dance, remember that, that dance of grace, when we no longer want to be astounded by the receiving, energized by the gratitude, excited to, to be able to give back in, in part and in a, in a way where he says, and find out what pleases the Lord. 
It's all part of that. Find out what pleases the Lord rather than find out how much pleasure you can get away with yourself. How dirty a movie you can watch and still kind of be okay by the blood of Christ. How far you can go in your, your impurity, pornea, and, and still feel not too much guilt in your relationship with God. If it gets to that point, we've completely rejected a covenant of grace. We're under some bizarre covenant of works that, that we want to have. And we are, are completely shutting the door and coming out of the dance of grace that everybody in Ephesus would have understood that, that we are meant to be part of. And rather than thanksgiving, what, what they are left with instead, if they end up in this case, is something very dark and awful. But here's what's interesting. It doesn't sound like this is the case for anyone in the church there. The way that he puts it is like, you were once darkness. You're not that anymore. There shouldn't even be a mention of this among any of you. And it's only theoretical. He doesn't say, and this is mentioned among you. In other letters he says that. But he doesn't say it to Ephesus. He doesn't say, and I hear a bad report from Chloe's household. Here's what's going on with you. He's not saying that. He's saying that if this would ever be mentioned among you, well, then here's the deal. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Oh, and by the way, yes, that well-meaning guy down the road who's always going to try and pat you on the back and always be sentimental towards you and always try to you know, be, be able to uh, be, be grandfatherly in his relationship with you, well, he'll tell you that, oh, it's okay. The love of God is so big. You, you, you shouldn't in any way limit the love of God. It'll be all right. Well, then, if that's your God, then you worship an idol because it's a God of your own making. It's not a just God. It, but, but God is both just and justifier in, in his love for us. And, and there should be no room for this. Our lives should be not, nothing but characterized by an ongoing, continuous, reinforcing cycle of the dance of grace, of the thanksgiving that comes from that. And we should always be thinking, as he says here, find out what pleases the Lord. Verse 10. You know what doesn't please the Lord? Impurity, sexual morality, and greed. And, you know, it's interesting that in this political climate, we've got two, two sides of the country. There's part of the country that is like, yeah, you know what? We, 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 need, to, we need to make sure that we really kind of clamp down on, on, on what people are, are doing with their bodies and, and being pure sexually. But that, that same group, though, is, oh, but hey, don't you dare be coming at me with my money. Uh, no, 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 no. That's, that's off limits. Yeah, let's get inside the bedroom, but not inside my pocketbook. And then we got the whole other side, which would be the liberal side, who is like, hey, let's not be talking about what goes on in the bedroom. You know, eh, that's up to everybody else. But I want to talk about your pocketbook. And I got to make sure that that, that is being kind of given to the, to the common good here. What's interesting is God is interested in all of it. He doesn't kind of in, in any way segregate the bedroom from the pocketbook or from the wallet. Brothers class. Uh, not a lot of pocketbooks, I would assume, but never know. Uh, but brothers, the way that the way that we consider even our opportunity to express gratitude and to find out what pleases the Lord with our bodies and with our monies is that an appropriate response? to Jesus dying for you. 
Is that going on in your dance? Are you dancing a dance of joy with the grace of God? Or are you looking to just kind of do as, as little as necessary and just try to feel okay about it? You're losing out if that's the case. It's an all-in, beautiful trust. It's a covenant that requires a trust in His grace. And it's rather obvious if we're putting Him first. If we're putting Him first, well, then we learn the, the great value of delayed gratification with our bodies. And if we're putting Him first, we learn the great value of actually worshiping God even from our pocketbooks. The word worship comes actually from a contraction of worth worship. And how much is God worth based on how it is that we're actually worshiping him through our offering? Does he get the leftover? Does he get less than Cox Cable? Honestly, that's a good question. If he gets less than Cox Cable, well then we ought to radically rearrange our lives. And then what in the world do I attach worth to right, right now in my life? Am I more excited for my, my internet bill to, to make sure that that's covered? Or am I more excited to worship God through, through my offering? Covetousness is no joke. It's idolatry. It is idolatry in, in the Bible. And if God's not getting our first and our best, and if he's just getting our leftovers, well, that puts us firmly in that place of, of, of merely that. Well, but you don't know. I got pressure. We all do. Who doesn't? Who doesn't have kind of crazy, nasty anti-windfalls that, that come our way that, that kind of you know, stack up against all of that. Who doesn't have pressures even to, oh my goodness, I just wanted to be able to compromise even with my body. You know, in, in all of these things, um, God nonetheless provides a way for you to still have a trust in His grace and a path of repentance. And, and where does it come? From a bunch of people who are children of light who no longer have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, as it says here, but rather exposes them. That exposure is your lifeline back into the dance of grace with God. That exposure is not some uh, kind of fault-finding brother who's out for your head. That is a loving man who is trying to find out what it is that pleases the Lord. And if, if, if he recognizes and he's your friend, and, and, or even if he's just a faithful servant of God and he happens to be the one that notices something and he brings it your way, praise God. That's all the fact that he still has hope and love for you to bring you back into this dance, back into a continuous spiral of transformation into the likeness of Christ, back into a continuous spiral of greater and greater glory as we become more like Christ, rather than into a minimalist approach where we're just trying to get by and get one over on the fellowship and ultimately thinking that we're getting one over even on God. You know what that is? Disgrace. And you know what you have available to you? His grace. Don't trade in His grace for disgrace. There's something really remarkable that waits us as you allow the exposing light. Brothers who say, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ is going to shine on you. That they, they do bring the exposing work of, of, of the light to bring you back. And then to be lifted up, impelled by gratitude. Something that's not even of our own doing, but a reaction to God's generosity. God's grace. We move into a new kind of life. Not merely living for Jesus, 
but even stepping out of the way so that he lives through us. The dwelling of his spirit filling us. Moving us like a mind moves the body as the spirit moves us in, a, in every step of love into greater transformation into the image of Christ. And thus, by God's grace, we're brought in line with God's righteous standards and desires. We're transformed into what a just God can both affirm and commend. And it's all by God's initiative of grace. There are missteps, but there are also people waiting to be his servants and his agents to bring you back into the dance. Brothers, if you find yourself turning your back on this dance, on this reinforcing work of the grace of God that began prior to your, your conversion and continues after, if you don't find yourself in that dance, get back in the dance tonight. Amen. Know the joy of that reciprocity of just reveling in thanksgiving at every turn of what it is that God has in store for you. This is His will for every one of us. That kind of joyous life together. Let's talk about it as we go to our groups. Amen.